Criminology is a true crime podcast that may contain discussion about violent or disturbing topics. Listener discretion is advised. like to welcome everyone to episode six season two of criminology so morph can you believe it we are at the halfway point yeah we've come a long ways there's a lot of material that we've covered but there's even more coming in the second half of the season and i'm i'm really stoked about that i think that's what's so amazing you know these first six episodes if you think about you know how much detail is in there we have a whole nother half just like that to go. All right, more if we have some Patreon shout outs, so let's go ahead and do those. We had Gemma Hind, Kate Burke, Penny Wilson, Tessa Alderton, Dan Maudsley, Kim Vu, Tim Harding, Deandra Lay, Aaron, and L. Oh, that's really awesome. We we appreciate all all of you reaching out and giving us uh, the support that you have much appreciated yeah that kind of support is amazing we really appreciate it it helps us to defray some of the costs of the podcast so morph and i are very thankful for that and we've had a lot of people tell us that they're going to crime con and that they want to stop by and say hi to us on podcast row i can't wait morph you know gibby's going to be there it's going to be the three of us and True Crime All the Time listeners, Criminology listeners. I mean, I hope everybody stops by. I can't wait. Yeah, I'm hoping it's like a little party there. It will be, that's for sure. But don't forget, if you haven't signed up, but you're planning on it, make sure you use our promo code at CrimeCon.com, Criminology. That's going to save you 10% off your standard badge. And one more order of business. We just wanted to talk real quick about our book. Um, that's based on season one of Criminology on the Zodiac case. It's called Criminology True Crime Podcast Presents The Case of the Zodiac Killer. And you can pre-order the Kindle version by visiting Amazon, or you can go to our publishing partner in the venture, Wild Blue Press. Go to wildbluepress.com forward slash Zodiac pre-orders. And Wild Blue Press has some really good true crime books. And as a special offer to listeners of Criminology, Wild Blue Press is offering a free audiobook download. All you have to do is go to wildbluepress.com forward slash audio dash books. All right, Morph, now that we have all of that out of the way, let's get into the case. We've got a lot to cover, and like we mentioned up front, this is the halfway point. So just a quick recap on episode five. We covered the case of a man that chased a prowler who was most likely the East Area Rapist, And we also talked about the man who stood up at a town hall meeting, was very vocal about the East Area Rapist, and then later on, he and his wife became victims of the East Area Rapist. And then towards the end of the episode, we got into the case of the Visalia Ransacker and the possibility that 
the ransacker and the East Area Rapist may or may not be the same offender. In this episode, we pick back up after the attack on Sandbar Circle in Carmichael on May 17, 1977. The East Area Rapist was on a toward pace at this point and had attacked several times in the month of May. The frequent attacks had all of Sacramento County on edge, and the result was a flood of letters to the editor of the Sacramento Bee voicing their concerns. For the first time in my life, we have a loaded gun in our bedroom. The East Area Rapist has all of us so fearful that we're all becoming dangerous. The police alone cannot handle the situation, but private citizens should look to them for leadership. The police should organize neighborhood alert units. These units should consist of unarmed people who would patrol the neighborhood or in some other way would be more alert than usual. These people must be trained and guided by the police or we will kill some innocent people and not capture the rapists. Perhaps some good can come out of this. These same patrols guided by the authorities could be retained after the crisis to increase the safety of our homes. Recently, as I sat reading my evening paper, I could not believe what I read. On the front page, I read of the 23rd rape victim. On another page, I read of parents picketing the police department because of the recent rape and murder of a 15-year-old child. These parents are afraid for their own children. They want more protection. I then looked over to another column, and I saw where Sacramento Vice Mayor Robert Matsui, quote, suggested extra funds may be needed to beef up the police vice squad to combat street corner prostitution. On a one-year basis, I'd be willing to allocate extra funds. I can certainly see that there are such pressing matters on the vice mayor's mind. As a parent and a woman afraid in my own home, I can see where extra funds should go to protect our citizens from rapers and murderers rather than a street corner prostitute. Don't you think our priorities are in the wrong place? A concerned citizen, Carmichael. The two letters that you just heard read aloud were printed in the May 26th, 1977 Sacramento Bee. And we have to give huge thanks to our true crime podcast friends. So the first was read by Gibby from True Crime All the Time, my partner. And then the second letter was by Lainey from True Crime Fan Club. And if you haven't checked out that, podcast you need to do it laney is a very good friend and she puts out an amazing podcast so big shout out to both of them for helping us read some of these articles i think you can tell by what those people wrote into the paper just how worried they were and the very next day on may 27th an article ran in the sacramento b detailing how fed up Sacramento residents were with the East Area Rapists not being caught. They were so fed up at this point that they had their own citizens patrol working with police looking for this guy. More than 100 Sacramento residents armed with citizen band radios officially began their nocturnal patrols of East Area Streets Thursday. Members of the East Area Rapist Surveillance Patrol, riding in vehicles plastered with identifying ears patrol stickers, set out in search of the man who has raped 23 women and has threatened to kill his next two victims. The Sacramento County Sheriff's Department reports that it does not endorse the volunteer group but is working in cooperation with it, said Captain Larry Stam of the Detective Division. Quote, we would rather do it as a control group than have people going out in mass. 
We've worked with them throughout the past week, unquote. The sheriff's office earlier this week said it was limiting EARS activity to main business thoroughfares, but after deciding upon a list of stringent ground rules, is allowed to patrol into residential areas. The volunteers must ride in pairs, may not carry firearms or ammunition, and may not leave their vehicles during patrol. If the CBers see something suspicious, they are to report the location via code numbers to a base unit, which will contact the sheriff. The areas patrolled, as well as the CB channels, will be rotated nightly. One of the EARS coordinators, Dr. James Gilmartin, a Sacramento dentist, said, quote, The more eyes that are out there, the more we have in our favor, unquote. He and Chairman Ed Nanini report the organization is expected to grow much larger after all the applications have been screened. There was an atmosphere of anticipation and adventure at the Arden Fair Shopping Center Thursday when volunteers were given last-minute instructions and set off clutching maps. CBer Greg Luckett, 18, said he's prepared to patrol, quote, however long it takes to either capture the suspect or scare him off, unquote. One volunteer, an East Area resident, while waiting for her husband to pick up the map, said, quote, I've been scared to death. I want him to get caught. I've lost enough sleep over him, and a few more nights won't do any harm, unquote. She said that she didn't mind the late-hour work. The CBers will not only be on the lookout for the rapist, but will also be on the lookout for any kind of crime, said Nanini. He reported that burglaries have dropped substantially, and an advertisement by the group reported that during a previous unofficial patrol by the volunteers, a 70% reduction in burglaries was reported by the sheriff's office. At the end of the first four-hour shift, all was quiet and no incidents were reported. One set of volunteers slowly cruised the deserted streets in the Del Deo area, where the rapist made his latest attack. The patrol was uneventful as the pair drove past the well-lighted grounds. Most residents have installed extra floodlights, and some have even removed tinted porch light covers, exposing bare bulbs for maximum illumination. Volunteers are given pre-selected one-mile square areas and may not wander into other neighborhoods. According to Gil Martin, some CBers are stationary units staking out specific locations. It is their job to record the license numbers on passing vehicles. Gil Martin said that EARS will patrol the east area until the rapist is stopped. He said, quote, if he's apprehended or if he's scared off, we win either way. This was a lot of attention given to the east area rapist by this newspaper in just a two-day period, especially considering that the east area rapist had not struck in over a week before these articles ran which was surprising considering how many attacks he had committed in May. But it seems as if these articles and the mention of a patrol out looking for him may have motivated him to make an appearance, and he would strike on the next day on May 28th. Perhaps the East Area Rapist took it as a challenge, knowing a patrol was out looking for him. On the 7,000 block of 4th Parkway in Sacramento, a 28-year-old woman was home doing some chores on the night of May 27th when she noticed that her garage door was partially open. The married library clerk didn't think a whole lot about it, and she shut the door before going back to do her housework. She put her young son to bed before going to bed herself around 11.30 p.m. And then it was just after midnight on May 28th, her husband arrived home after work. The 31-year-old man had just finished his shift working at the county water treatment plant. Once the man arrived home, he sat down and watched a movie until about 2 a.m. and then got into bed, at which point his wife awoke, and the two began to become intimate with each other. While they were in the process of becoming intimate, the man heard a noise behind him coming in from their sliding glass door. As he turned around to see what he heard, he was shocked to see a man in a red ski mask walking through the door towards him. In a second, the man was almost on top of them and shining a flashlight in their eyes. 
Despite the light in their eyes, they could see him holding a handgun that looked to be a forty-five caliber in his right hand. The first words out of the masked intruder's mouth let the couple know that he meant business. He said, lay perfectly still or I will kill all of you. I will kill you. I will kill her. I will kill your little boy. And more, if you have to imagine being in their position, they are taken totally by surprise and immediately threatened with being killed. And it's not just themselves that they have to worry about. They have to worry about their son. So it's perfectly understandable why this couple didn't try and fight back. In fact, it's the same reason why many of the East Area rapist victims didn't because they were surprised and they were at a severe disadvantage. The masked intruder told the terrified couple that he just wanted food and money and then he would be gone. It was then they instructed the woman to bind her husband as he threw her some shoelaces. The attacker told the man that he needed to lay face down and if he moved, his wife and son would be dead. The couple complied, and the woman started to tie her husband's hands behind his back. The woman planned to tie her husband loosely, hoping that he might be able to escape. But the man watched her closely, and he kept demanding that she tie her husband even tighter. Once the male victim was secured, the assailant forced the woman down and tied her hands behind her back. The man again warned them to lay face down and not to move or they would be dead. He rifled through their drawers and their closets, and then he walked over to the male victim, placed the gun to his head, and again warned him not to move. He then tied the man's hands very tightly and also tied his ankles. The masked man left the room and went to the bathroom. The couple could hear the unmistakable sound of him pumping a bottle of lotion. He returned to their bedroom and placed some glass items on the male victim's back and warned him that if he heard those items make a sound, everybody in the house would be dead. At that point, he tied the female victim's ankles as well and then left the room and went to the couple's kitchen. A few minutes later, he returned with even more items that he stacked on the man's back. This time, he held a knife to the bound man's throat, once again warning him not to move. The masked man reiterated that he only wanted food and money and that he would soon be gone. Suddenly, the intruder untied the female's ankle bindings and removed her from the bed. He forced her to walk to the living room where the woman could see strips of torn towel spread on the living room floor. The assailant forced the woman to the floor and then used one of the strips of towel to blindfold her. The man walked back into the bedroom to make sure that the male victim was secure and then shut the bedroom door and walked back into the living room. At that point, he sexually assaulted the woman. As the rapist sexually attacked the woman, he whispered in her ear that, I have something for you to tell the fucking pigs. The cops got it wrong last time. And then he said he would kill two people if news of this attack was on TV or in the papers the next day. He made the woman repeat back to him what he had told her, and she did. He warned her that he had TVs in his apartment and he would be watching them. Then he said something really odd, which was, It scares mommy when it's on the news. The woman thought the attacker was sobbing when he told her that. After a few minutes, the house fell silent. The male victim thought he heard the sliding glass door open, but he didn't hear anything after that. So he thought the intruder was gone. He decided to try and free himself, 
knocking the dishes off his back, which made noise. But the intruder was in fact gone, and the man was able to free himself and then his wife. They called police, and again, Morph, like in a lot of these cases, luckily the couple's son was unharmed and had not been disturbed. Police arrived at the home before 5 a.m. and immediately took inventory of the crime scene. And from the outset, they figured this was likely an East Area rapist attack. The couple told the police that their attacker was a five foot nine to five foot ten, slender to medium sized man who weighed about 160 to 170 pounds. The female victim added that the rapist had a very small penis. They also told investigators that the man talked in what sounded like a low whisper that was raspy and that he may have had a slight stutter. They relayed all the conversation, which included the talk about delivering a message to the police. And they added that the man also mentioned he would be eating the food in his van. It's unclear from the police report what, if anything, the attacker took from the home. The female victim was taken to the hospital for treatment. And then outside of the house, police found food from the home on the patio. They found a wine bottle. Tracking dogs were brought into the property. And just after 5 a.m., the canine units began to work the scene. The dogs followed the rapist scent to the back fence and then picked up the scent on the other side of the fence, leading down towards the freeway and to another fence along the freeway that led to a cemented drainage area or canal. Now remember this area because it's going to come up again. Around this area, tire tracks from a small car were found, but it's unknown if the tracks belong to the assailant. Police pieced together the events that led up to the attack. The couple had only moved into the home three weeks prior to the attack, and the home still had a realtor sign on the lawn. Police were interested to learn that the treatment plant where the male worked at was located very close to Sandbar Circle in Carmichael, the scene of the previous East Area Rapist attack. After questioning neighbors, it came to light that preceding this attack, there was a lot of strange activity on this block. Several residents had received odd and hang-up calls in the days and weeks preceding the attack. There were reports of several people going door-to-door, everything from vacuum salesmen to men selling children's books to Mormon missionaries. A man representing a fictitious organization called Library Educational System was handing out survey forms. Several suspicious cars were seen, and at least one prowler was reported. A few days before the attack, a man described as being 25 years old, 5 foot 9 and 160 pounds with dark hair, was carrying a camera case and asking neighborhood children if he could take their photos. As we've seen in other East Area rapist attacks, this kind of activity was common leading up to an attack. And you have to wonder if one or more of these people seen in the area was the East Area rapist surveying the neighborhood. And if he wasn't surveying the neighborhood, was he trying to slip in to some of these areas filled with activity to blend in? One very interesting event happened early in the month of May. While on patrol, police noticed a man in a small square-shaped car, possibly a Datsun or Chevy, watching a woman playing football at a park about a mile from the location of the attack. As they passed the car, 
they noticed that the man was a blonde male in his 20s. And then a short while later, the same patrol car drove by and spotted the man in the same place, still there watching the woman. And this time, they took note of the license plate and then drove past the car up the road a ways. But they decided to turn around. They wanted to check this guy out. But when they got back to the spot where he'd been parked, he and his car were gone. They called in the plate number and discovered that it had never been issued. This most recent attack had been the 22nd confirmed attack by the East Area Rapist and his fifth attack in the month of May alone. It seemed as if there would be no slowing down for the East Area Rapist. But then, without any warning, that's exactly what happened. Days went by, then weeks. There was not an attack in Sacramento County attributed to the East Area Rapist. Incidents of prowling seemed to almost be non-existent. May turned into June, and then July and August. The entire summer in Sacramento seemed to be East Area Rapist-free. Theories abounded as to where the East Area Rapist was and why he wasn't attacking. The fear in the community was still there, but for police, it gave them a chance to catch their breath. It wouldn't be until February 2018, over 40 years later, that police would announce that they were investigating a lead that might be tied to this sudden stop in East Area Rapist activity. Detective Sergeant Ken Clark of the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department broke down this possible lead in great detail for us in this interview segment. One of the other leads that we featured uh, on our media release for the 40th anniversary of the uh, Brian and Katie Maggiore murder was a lead we come across in uh, files that we recently discovered that dealt with a visit to American River Hospital. And it's it's an odd... uh, set of circumstances, and that's what struck us as being something that we might need to look into further. And um, why we chose it to put out into the public was that the only way we could possibly get information was to release it into the public. We had previously investigated everything we could about the lead and hit dead ends along the way. And so really we, uh, as a long shot effort, were hoping that somebody might remember the incident uh, enough to give us something tangible. So in this particular case, as part of our uh, work here, we obviously uh, went several times, but, you know, when we read these reports, we went to all of the crime scenes and looked at different um, features and factors uh, that you would as a detective. And, you know, sometimes we we came up with with thoughts that that were not always represented in the case files. Uh, And in this case, we had looked at the crime scene that occurred on 4th Parkway, uh, in South Sacramento, and uh, that particular uh, crime scene bordered Highway 99. And it was believed uh, by investigators at the time that the suspect had parked on the shoulder or near the clover leaf of Highway 99, and then um, jumped over the fencing that separated the freeway from this neighborhood and had emerged uh, to commit the crime and then left via the same route. And When my partner and I, uh, over the years, have have been out there, and I went out recently, and one of the things I noticed was that, uh, again, there's there's a lot of conjecture involved here because there was a dog track and some other things. And so, you know, I would give the caveat that, you know, this isn't a perfect science, so to speak. There's a 
some supposition that that goes into this type of analysis and you know we can't know what did or didn't occur uh, as we don't have an eyewitness to uh, his escape from this scene but one thing that we were struck by was given the best information we had about how this man escaped that he might have injured himself in the creek area and it's like a drainage canal so at the time, right now, there's a sound wall that prevents it. You wouldn't even be able to, to scale. It's, a, it's many feet high, probably 10 to 12 feet high, that protects the freeway from, or protects the neighborhood from the freeway noise. Um, but at the time, it was just two chain link fences, and, and both those fences were on either side of this drainage canal. And so it's kind of wide open, but there is a, a small grove of trees that has um, um, some advantages if you're going to try to go over because there is a, a locked gate that has some, some footing where you can get your footing and get, get over the fence, and it has a top bar on the chain link fence. The remainder of the fence is open, and it's got that kind of pointy, uh, unfinished look on top, and it would be a little bit more difficult to get over the fence in that section. It's also open to, to the view of um, the street or uh, anybody. But this grove of trees protected this little gate, and it appeared a good possible spot based on what we understood about um, the tracking that had been done for him to have tried to get over. But, but we were struck by the kind of sheer uh, nature of this canal, which was different than some that, you know, he would run in. This was a literally a V shaped bottom. So you've got on each side about four and a half to five feet of canal below this six foot fence. And that we didn't really see a good way because there was no footing or no place to jump where uh, when you landed, you would almost definitely fall because you, when you went into this V-shaped creek, you can't, there's no way to gain footing. You would definitely kind of gain speed going down and then you would end up, we would think, smashing on the other side. So from the other side of the fence there is a bit of footing and our thought was that maybe when he came over from the freeway direction you know he probably didn't didn't realize that it was going to be a more treacherous uh jump coming back across and especially in the dark uh we think that we thought there was a possibility that that it was it was a rather dangerous jump we made that observation so now fast forward to when we're, we're we get these reports and um, I had found this report that showed that a guy had come to American River Hospital on May 30th, 1977, which was two days after the Fourth Parkway attack, and that during this um, time period, he entered the hospital uh, and basically requested treatment for a broken shoulder. Uh, he told the medical staff that it had occurred on um, uh, May the 28th, uh, and he spoke to a clerk with the initials BK. And in fact, as of the release of this, uh, I want to let you know that we actually have identified the clerk um, with the initials BK uh, to a great deal of satisfaction that it is the person. And unfortunately, she has uh, passed away. Uh, we had a couple potential candidates that were BKs, uh, but this one is, is, is very clearly the name on the signature. We had a signature of this person, but it was rather illegible, and then we had the definite initials of BK. But in looking at the signature, um, coupled with the information we had about this individual, we determined that that was the case. And we got that information. There was actually uh, 
some work done by Paul Haynes, who was a, a researcher for Michelle McNamara, and uh, he's the one that basically uh, approached us when he saw our press release and uh, gave this information that he thought it was uh, uh, a woman who he had found that worked at the hospital, and then in, in looking at it, it, uh, it all made sense. So unfortunately, that's a dead end for us, and, but the, the remainder of the, the lead is, goes somewhat like this. The subject uh, that's in the hospital arouses suspicion for an unknown reason from staff there. And he f basically leaves the um, hospital without receiving treatment. He indicated to them, and as, as verified by the form, that he was uh, an individual by a certain name. And he provided the name uh, and a birthday uh, of May the 12th, 1946 which made him a 31-year-old male at the time of this incident. Uh, he stated that it occurred, that he was employed by the Rice Growers Association, and that this occurred on a fall from scaffolding uh, on May the 28th in the morning hours. The person whose name he used, and all of this turns out to be fictitious, the name that he used, that individual did work at the Rice Growers Association. Uh, they went and visited him, and the result of that was that he had no injury to his shoulder, uh, and had and stated that he had had his wallet, including assorted identification cards and credit cards, either lost or stolen uh, sometime around two years prior to this incident. In in that particular time period, uh, he assumed he thought it was stolen, but he figured it could be only lost because they never heard of any of the credit cards ever being used. But then all of a sudden, here we are a couple years later, and his card has popped up as. Um, an identification card being used by a man who, who according to the report, fled when uh, nurses started to look at him with suspicion. So that ended the lead for them at this point uh, because they didn't have too much to go on. And, you know, you got to bear in mind there hadn't been a, a three-month, uh, you know, 13-week gap in, in crimes. Uh, this is two days after an offense. And after this particular offense, there are continued um, prowls and, and peeps going on throughout many of the areas that the East Area Rapist hit. So this was a, a, a lead that I think they viewed as, as maybe not as valuable in that time period. And again, their judgment may prove completely sound in that. We, we don't know. But they took it as far as they felt that they could. And the phone number that he provided uh, was, was no good, and I verified that in the modern era. And they, uh, the address he provided for an um, emergency notification was another individual that worked at the Rice Growers Association, and he's been spoken to and knew the gentleman whose ID was used. So the only thing we can consider is that perhaps the individual who had the ID had some information with this guy or he knew in some way that they were associated based on information in the wallet. And so he used that as an emergency contact to try to make the story better. The social security number he used is, is bogus. So basically everything in this, uh, this report that he did was wrong. And we also spoke to and found out that the Rice Growers Association didn't have any scaffolding there. Uh, during that time period, and that again confirmed uh, the, the original investigators' uh, thoughts regarding uh, this particular lead. But knowing that there had been a 13-week gap and knowing that there was a possibility, um, albeit again, it is possibility only that there was an injury that could have occurred uh, on that particular egress from the crime in on the North Park. I'm sorry, the uh, Fourth Parkway case. 
Uh, we felt that it was worth getting it even 40 years later into the media in the hopes that uh, BK, the clerk, was identified and maybe had more information about this man, or we got some more specificity on what made him uh, flee uh, the hospital. And of course, our big hope was is that uh, somebody within the hospital recognized him uh, for a uh, more concrete reason than just uh, a resemblance to a composite or something like that, where he felt vulnerable enough based on their having seen him that he wanted to leave. Uh, we do know one of the victims worked at that hospital, and she had actually been working that day, but it was in the graveyard shift, and she had heard about many of these, um, or she had heard about this going on uh, at that time, but uh, at that point, it, you know, it didn't, um, there was nothing she felt she could or should do. So we have this guy showing up, and we just really don't know why. So the lead is largely played out now. Every angle we, we have been able to explore has kind of reached a dead end, and now that we have the clerk BK identified, it's going to obviously be much more difficult, but we're still hoping that somebody uh, might remember this specific visit. And, you know, whether or not the East Area Rapist had a shoulder injury uh, in the late late uh, spring, excuse me, early summer of 1977 is, uh, you know, a point of conjecture only, and we don't know for sure, but we still would like to get this individual, even 40 years later, identified and see, uh, you know, be able to verify that they were not or in any way involved with the East Area Rapist crimes. The identification uh, card that he took, the gentleman was older than that by several years. So that raised a couple thoughts for us. One is that the offender or whoever was in the hospital knew that the it would be tough passing off his real age vis-a-vis -vis the age of the gentleman whose ID was stolen. So he got closer to it to where it was still reasonable. In other words, if he's born in 1952, this guy is born in the 30s, he, he backed it up a bit so that it was plausible. The other thought is he may have actually been born in or uh, near 1946 and that, that he would state the age which he appeared uh, so that it wouldn't raise any suspicion maybe knowing that they wouldn't have the identifying information on the age of the the guy who was actually using the, uh, or the guy whose ID card it actually belonged to. The other possibility is that, that, that some of this behavior is what raised the hackles of, of people at the hospital, um, and that that could have caused his flight because he thought that the gig was up regarding the fraud. Uh, but it just seems like an odd set of circumstances kind of coming together at once. And again, very strange that somebody within the hospital would believe for whatever reason that this was the East Area Rapist. Among all of the many young men that come into the hospital, this was a time period of very heightened activity of the East Area Rapist. A lot of sketches were um, floating around back then and descriptions of the suspect were out there. But it seems kind of a, a leap given the number of, of, of young white males in this uh, age group and general description that would have come into the hospital that they seized on just a man walking in looking like the East Area Rapist and caused this much uh, scrutiny to come onto this individual. So that's why it's of interest to us. For some reason, they thought he was EAR, and we want to find out why. Ken detailed for us how the dog had tracked the East Area Rapist into the area where they suspect he may have injured himself while fleeing. There was no eyewitness. This is coming from a dog track and where they believed... Um, 
the freeway uh, place where he had parked. This would be a logical place to go over. If he doesn't go over here, uh, he's really going to spend a whole lot of time in the neighborhood uh, away from his car uh, before he can get to his car. And the the most logical place is, is, is where they supposed back then that he went over, and that was that particular location. A lot of people, after hearing about these new leads being looked into, have been under the impression that law enforcement has been sitting on these for years and just decided to release them now. Ken wanted to set the record straight about that. One of the big considerations with a case of this volume is, and it's 40 years old, most of these detectives have long since retired, uh, and memories fade over time. And so we've got this giant case that's in comes to or came to us in many boxes to begin with that we uh, organized for the first time in 2005-06 time period. And when I first got these cases, they were in a closet, and they had been examined about four years prior with the DNA hit. And then, again, it was really that the leads kind of stopped coming, and uh, they went back into storage. And when I took them out and, and looked at them, we, we organized them and looked at everything and did not know what we did or didn't have. Um, we had what we thought were complete case files uh, that contained a lot of the original investigation and certainly the, the case files for each individual sexual assault case. And we had all of the files for the, the Maggiore double murder case, uh, which was kept here in homicide. So we were largely convinced we had a more complete copy because it was among all of the other files that we have here. But we had heard over the years uh, whispers that reports that were related to our case were still outstanding, um, that they were in other jurisdictions, um, in other allied uh, investigative uh, agencies, etc. And we did our best to try and locate uh, as much of, of run that down as best we could. And we kind of put our feelers out, let them know that we believe that these additional documents may exist. And we really didn't uh, get too much back after that. When we put together the um, working group that we have with the Southern California agencies, everybody uploaded all of their um, uh, reports so we could all, all view them. And we put everything that we had up at that time. And it wasn't uh, but a few years, uh, just about a year ago, maybe a little bit more, that we got word that uh, some reports had been located at one of the allied agencies um, that works this case, and that they looked like original reports, and they were in the old um, original style folders that, that I was so familiar with from having seen the original East Area Rapist files when I first took the case on. And these reports contained a lot of good information uh, that had not yet been seen by us in the modern era. Uh, there were leads that were worked, and many of them were closed completely back in the time period, but we did not have knowledge of uh, some of the results of these investigations. And some of these leads that were worked related directly to leads that, that, we, had, that we had also worked in the modern era, and then these leads were more complete than the ones that we had worked because so much of the missing documentation we had didn't didn't have some of this information in it. So we were pretty pretty happy to get these, and when we went through, this is where I found the American River Hospital lead. And uh, at that time, the investigators worked it as far as they could, and they didn't necessarily believe that it was a a, a prime lead, if you will. So 
how we choose what to release is going back through and looking for those things that the public truly can help on. I mean, we don't release uh, every lead we get or uh, as we're working on things and read reports and find something interesting. If it's something that we as investigators can, can flesh out and, and eliminate or include, we do so. But every once in a while, you get a lead like this that you take it as far as you can, but it has some promise and, and some closed uh, or loose end feel to it. And even though it's been 40 years, we've kind of made a decision as an investigative team that the only way that – if it was even a one-tenth of one percent chance that, that, that somebody remembered something really specific and it led us down a road that identified this individual – um, or led us to the individual who this tip was actually about, and we can exclude them, that it was, it's worth doing. Um, there's a lot of interest on this case. I don't think people, when they read this type of thing, they, they seem genuinely interested. Uh, we get a lot of passionate people that approach the investigation. Uh, they call, they uh, send us email tips, and we're, we're very gratified by that. And when things like this are put out, you would be surprised the number of people uh, who really try to help us through a lead like this. And they give us information. And again, that's how we ended up figuring out who the clerk was. Uh, sadly, she had passed away. But that could have led somewhere. It could have led to a little more than we knew about this lead going in. And while this particular lead isn't necessarily panning out for us, we feel that, that releasing some of this stuff even 40 or 45 years later in the case of the 1973 burglaries we've discussed uh, has value. People aren't getting any younger. This case, as I've said before, is in the fourth quarter, and we're on the two-minute drill now. We're, is there an argument to be made that some of this stuff should have or could have been released back in that era? I really don't know. I wasn't part of that initial investigation. I know that the detectives I've spoken with did the best that they could, and they were dealing with a fresh and active rape series that was ongoing and in real time with a, a media demand that was voracious with a city on the edge and there really wasn't a method for them to get out all of this stuff without flooding the public with a bunch of potentially not just useless but misleading information. But here with the benefit of 40 years of hindsight, um, we can kind of go through and look at things that we know about somebody now and, and make some assessments as to whether we think it's valuable, whether we think this lead has any ability to solve the case. And it's a judgment call. And I don't do it alone. Uh, I submit uh, what I'm thinking to my partner. We submit it to other partners and people that we work with uh, on this case and get their opinion on whether or not it's worth going forward. And we got basically feedback that this was something that uh, we should be uh, getting out in the public, even on the slim chance that or on the, with the slim chance that it was going to identify somebody. We are very careful. We try to be very careful and not assert something that's not in evidence, meaning we have no proof that the East Area Rapists suffered any injury at all during any day uh, of this series. And so I wouldn't want anybody to assume that there's a shoulder injury here. This is a supposition. It is a possibility, and that's all it is. But yes, if it includes, if somebody remembers an individual that had a, had a shoulder injury uh, and may have been, you know, some circumstances that, that appear to fit in another way beyond that injury, and they want to approach with that information, we're certainly uh, interested in that. But we don't exclude anybody that didn't have a shoulder injury in the summer of 77, if you understand what I mean. This is something that you, unfortunately, the way these investigations work in some, something this mammoth, you have to sometimes look at possibilities that you wouldn't normally entertain on cases that are just easier to work. You know, this is one where there's 
Is it an explanation for the summer gap? Yeah, it could be an explanation for the summer gap, but there's many others as well. But this just tied in with the American River Hospital lead in such a way that we felt it was a possibility and it was worth getting out there. If you have information about the man who may have sought medical attention at American River Hospital for a shoulder injury in late May of 1977, please contact the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department by emailing them at earinfo at sacsheriff.com. And even if you have any information about someone that may fit the East Area Rapist profile, possibly exhibited signs of a shoulder injury in Sacramento County back during the summer of 1977, I mean, think about you know somebody wearing a sling, somebody wearing a cast. It's that type of information that could break this thing wide open. During the East Area Rapist hiatus in August of 1977, a mysterious letter writer mailed a letter to the Sacramento Police Department. On August 18th, the Sacramento Bee, at the request of police, ran an article about the letter in an effort to get more information. Sheriff's detectives said Wednesday they are interested in an anonymous letter they've received about the East Area Rapist. They appealed to the person who wrote it to contact detectives directly. Information contained in the brief letter may prove to be groundless and worthless, said Sheriff spokesman Bill Miller. But it could provide a break in the long, mystifying search for the sexual terrorist, he said. Detectives who received the letter late Tuesday afternoon have to check back with some of the rapist's 24 victims before they can evaluate the new tip, Miller said. He would not disclose the contents of the letter. Miller said, quote, at the moment, it is just an interesting statement. Miller asked the letter writer to call detectives anonymously if necessary. The typewritten note was signed, Afraid. It was written on plain stationery and contained only two paragraphs, one of which told detectives to relay a message if they wanted to hear more. The rapist, who attacked May 28th in the South Area, terrorized a 70-mile section of the eastern portion of Sacramento County for several months as he increased the frequency and viciousness of the rapes. The attack started October 21st, 1975. At first, the unknown rapist broke into the homes of women who were sleeping alone and attacked them in the middle of the night. But his last seven rapes, which were concentrated in April and May, occurred in the homes of married couples, where the rapist bound the husband and led the wives into other parts of the houses to attack them. It turned out that the author of the letter provided information which police felt was possibly legitimate, and they asked publicly for the writer to come forward. The letter writer claimed to know who the East Area Rapist was and provided sketchy details. But the author did not give their name, and instead they signed off the letter with afraid. It was not known whether or not the letter or its author were ever identified. Some have theorized the letter was a red herring sent by the East Area Rapist himself. However, in researching this case, I talked to multiple investigators that verified that the letter writer had been identified, and they had written the letter because they legitimately suspected somebody of being the East Area Rapist. Investigators ruled out both the author and the person they suspected as having anything to do with the East Area Rapist case. At the time, it seemed as if this letter might be a valuable clue, but like so many other things in this case, it was really just another dead-end lead. The summer of 1977 had come and gone without an East Area Rapist attack, but residents of Sacramento County were still vigilant. They hoped the East Area Rapist was gone, but they were very guarded. Meanwhile, in the town of Stockton, California, in San Joaquin County, this is about 50 miles south of Sacramento, residents had just wrapped up their summer. 
they weren't paying a whole lot of attention to the East Area rapist crimes that were occurring in the state's capital of Sacramento. To them, Sacramento might as well have been another planet. Like many other areas of California, Stockton was building up new homes and new developments. There was the Stockton Civic Auditorium, a huge theater, perfect for concerts. I mean, they had bands like Journey, Rush, Kansas back in that time period. But in September of 1977, about 13 weeks after the East Area Rapist had last attacked in Sacramento, he showed up in the city of Stockton. And the 150,000 residents there would soon experience the fear that the communities back in Sacramento County had come to know. The East Area Rapist made his presence felt in Stockton prior to the attack, whether purposefully or not. In August, about three weeks before the attack, several residents in the area of North Portage Circle started to find footprints in their yards. Dogs began barking at night for no known reason. People would hear noises in their yards. Still others began to receive hang-up phone calls. Towards the end of August, some people reported seeing an out-of-place white station wagon cruising slowly on local streets. And in the first week of September, the strange activity increased with even more hang-up phone calls and more barking dogs. But the residents of Stockton didn't know to look for these signs. After all, back in Sacramento County, authorities had never even alerted residents there of these signs that often preceded East Area Rapist attacks. In the early morning hours of September 5th, a woman was talking on her phone when she heard someone trying to get into her back door. She hung up her phone call and grabbed a handgun that she had nearby And she was prepared to use it on whoever was going to come through that door. But the person on the other side was never able to get the door open. The next day in the early morning hours of September 6th, at around 1 a.m. on North Portage Circle, neighbors heard a car driving on the circle, followed by the sounds of barking dogs. Just a short while later, at about 1.30 a.m., A 29-year-old woman on North Portage Circle was awakened by the sound of something at her sliding glass door. This sliding glass door led directly into her bedroom. She opened her eyes and caught the sight of a masked man, nude from the waist down, coming through the door and carrying a handgun in one hand and what appeared to be a doctor's bag in the other. The man saw that she was awake and warned her to be quiet, but she turned quickly and started to wake up her husband. Her 31-year-old husband awoke to the beam of light in his eyes from the intruder's flashlight. The masked man in a low, hoarse voice told the male victim he would kill him if he moved. At that point, what had become a familiar script in the East Area Rapist case started to unfold. The intruder ordered the man to roll over onto his stomach. He threw shoelaces to the woman and had her tie her husband up. But unlike most of the other East Area Rapist cases, he didn't bring the shoelaces with him. He actually got the shoelaces by removing them from a pair of the male victim's shoes. Once the woman had tied her husband up, the intruder retied him even tighter and tied his ankles as well. Then he tied the female victim. The attacker told the helpless couple that he just wanted money and some food for his apartment. The assailant then asked if there was anyone else in the home and the couple told him that they had two small children who were asleep in their rooms. It was then that the man told them something 
that shook this couple to their core. He warned them that if they gave him any trouble and didn't comply, that he would chop up their children and bring back their ears to the couple. The couple decided then and there they were not going to risk any harm to their kids and they fully complied. The attacker left the room for a bit and the couple was worried about their children. But the man came back after a couple minutes and held a knife to the male victim's throat and threatened him to cooperate. He then ordered the female victim out of bed. The woman was nude and uncomfortable and asked the man for a robe. The attacker gave her a robe, placing it over her shoulders. At knife point, he ordered her to walk through the home with him. All the while, he carried the doctor's bag with him. When they got to the living room, the woman saw that a blanket had been placed over a lamp giving off a soft glow to the room. He forced the woman to the floor and then walked away from her. He showed up back in the bedroom a minute later where her husband was still bound on the bed face down. The assailant placed dishes on the man's back and then he placed the gun to his head and he cocked it and he warned the husband, if these rattle, I'll kill you. The attacker walked back to the female victim and approached her from behind. She was facing away from him, but she could hear him masturbating behind her. He told her that ever since he had seen her in a store, he had wanted to fuck her. He then climbed on the woman and raped her. He stopped for a minute and pulled away from her. After a moment, he started the rape again. But this time, something was different to the woman. What had before felt like a very small, thin penis now seemed large and firm. And she got the distinct impression that the man was using some sort of sex toy or dildo to assault her with. The rapist left the woman bound in the living room and walked through the home, once again checking on the husband who hadn't moved. At one point, he went into the kitchen, made himself something to eat. After he finished eating, he talked to the couple one at a time, mentioning things like, I only live a few blocks away. I need stuff for my apartment like soap, towels, and a portable TV. During this conversation, one of the couple's young children walked out into the hallway and saw the man standing there. And he spoke to the child. And he said, I'm playing tricks with your mom and dad. Come watch me. Morph, this is just further proof of how warped and demented this man was. But he didn't hurt this child. You know, the the child went on to the bathroom, then walked back to the bedroom and went back to sleep. After the child had gone back to bed, the man once again walked over to the female victim and masturbated before raping her again. And once again, she felt he was using both his real penis and a fake one. He then climbed off the woman and walked away from her. After several minutes of silence, the couple, their young child, and a neighbor all heard what sounded like a loud VW start up and drive off. The couple scrambled to get free and called police. When the Stockton police arrived on scene, they found what looked like a random break-in and rape. They didn't know that this attack was the work of the East Area Rapist. Now, Sacramento police would have known that the single-story home, the use of both a gun and a knife, And the lines used by the assailant were all straight out of the East Area Rapist playbook. The victims described the man as being about five foot eight to five foot ten, 
weighing about 150 to 160 pounds and having a slender bill. The female victim described the man's small penis. The couple described the attacker's mask as being a brown ski mask. And one detail they added was that the rapist had a foul-smelling body odor. They told police that the man was naked from the waist down, but he did have a belt around his waist. The entry point to the home was the sliding glass door that led into the couple's bedroom, but the victims felt that it was most likely unlocked. It was determined that the intruder had removed ketchup and peanut butter from the refrigerator. Outside, a Pepsi can was found in the yard. Police felt that the attacker had left by jumping over their back fence. The attacker didn't get away with much. His haul included a few silver dollars and a money clip with the word missile carved into it. He also took the male victim's wedding band. It was yellow gold with the inscription for my angel on the inside, along with the date the couple got married. He took some yellow gold cufflinks with the male victim's initials on them and a few other odds and ends. So most of the stuff that he took had more of a personal or sentimental value there really wasn't a lot of monetary value to the things that he took off with. Police wanted to question the couple's child about what they had recalled, and they actually later put the child under hypnosis. While under hypnosis, the child recounted in detail about a tattoo that was described as being on the attacker's left arm of a bowl similar to the Schlitz malt liquor bowl, a black bowl with white horns. She also detailed a distinct belt buckle with two pistols crossed toward each other. In the days following the attack on this couple, their phone would ring in the late morning, but nobody would be on the other end when they answered. In fact, their phone didn't seem to work properly in general, and the couple had the phone company come out and fix it, but even after that, it seemed to work intermittently. Sometimes during a conversation, the victims would hear a click, and they became convinced that someone was listening to their calls. One day, the police were at the home when a call came in, and a young man on the other end of the phone told the female victim who had answered that his office had fixed her phone recently, but he needed for her to verbally tell him her phone number. Yeah, Mike, that's really odd. If somebody at the phone company calls you at your house and says that they did work on your line, but they don't know your phone number, that seems pretty strange to me, too. And it did to the woman as well. She handed the phone over to the police officer who was there so that he could hear the man's voice. The officer asked the man to repeat what he had said to the woman, but the caller hung up. Police decided to place a phone trap on the line so that incoming calls could be recorded. But once the trap was installed, no more odd phone calls came in and the trouble with their phone line seemed to clear up. Three months later, in December of 1977, the female victim received an obscene phone call. She was sure that the caller was the man that had raped her. In January of 78, after victim number one had recorded a call from her attacker, investigators played that recording for many victims of the East Area Rapist. And this included this latest victim as well. She verified that the person on that recorded call was her attacker. So there was no doubt at this point, the East Area Rapist had come to Stockton, California. The September 1977 attack in Stockton was confirmed to be an East Area Rapist attack. 
and it was a wake-up call, proving that the East Area Rapist wasn't afraid to leave the confines of Sacramento County to commit his crimes. Back in Sacramento, residents weren't taking any chances. Self-defense classes were being offered. Gun sales soared. Hardware stores sold out of locks and deadbolts. People wondered if the East Area Rapist was gone for good or if he would return. They wouldn't have to wonder for long. On September 30th, a young couple was arguing. A 17-year-old maid and her boyfriend, a 21-year-old electronics rep, had been feuding about personal issues that they were dealing with. And this was occurring at the man's home on the 9100 block of Tuolumne Drive in Sacramento. The fight escalated and at one point got so bad that the young woman asked her boyfriend to drive her home to her apartment, which was nearby. Once they were there, she started feeling ill from the effects of a medical procedure that she had undergone a day or two earlier. Despite the arguing, her boyfriend didn't want to leave her there alone, so he decided to take her back to his house around 11.30 p.m. When they got back to his house, the couple went inside and went to sleep. About an hour or so later, just after 1 a.m. on the morning of October 1st, the couple was awakened by a masked man holding a gun in his right hand and a flashlight in his left. The intruder warned the couple, shut up, don't move or I'll kill you. He added that he had a 357. He then told them that he wanted their dope and he knew they had some and he would look for it until he got it. The young man, still half asleep, looked over at the shotgun he had next to his bed and for a second thought about going for it. The intruder shined his light on the shotgun and then stared at the young man as if he was waiting for him to go for it. He decided not to and the intruder sensed that and took a step forward. Speaking through clenched teeth, he told the pair to roll over on their stomachs, which began a very familiar script. He threw shoelaces to the female, ordering her to tie up the male before retying the man tighter, then tying the young girl's wrists. The intruder cocked a gun and placed it against both of their heads, threatening them to comply. The next act in the script fell into place as he left the room and started to rummage through the house. At one point, he was in the room with the bound couple. The male victim's pit bull jumped on the bed and growled at the masked man. But this pit bull was a puppy, and it didn't attack the man, didn't even scare him. He simply took the young dog into another room and locked it up. As expected, the intruder took the female victim out of the room, tied her ankles, and blindfolded her. He returned to the male victim with a tray and salt shaker, placing it on his back. As the attacker turned to walk away, the male victim started moving to see if the items on his back would make noise. As he did this, the masked assailant turned and walked up to the man and placed the gun to his head and told him not to move again. After feeling that the male victim was secured, the intruder walked into the room where the female victim was located. He whispered to her through clenched teeth that if she didn't cooperate, he would slit her throat. The next thing she knew, she could hear him masturbating using lotion. And as we've talked about frequently, he placed his penis in the woman's bound hands and ordered her to play with it. Then he sexually assaulted the woman. Afterwards, he went in to check on the male victim. Everything here was a normal part of the East Area Rapist M.O., but this is where things would take a strange turn. The doorbell rang. 
The two bound victims heard the intruder walk outside where he stayed for several minutes. The attacker then came back into the house and once again turns his attention to the female victim and raped her again. He held the cocked gun to her head in the process. The man then made his way to their kitchen to eat. Outside of the house, they heard a car horn honk two times. After a couple minutes, the doorbell rang several times, and then they heard a knock on one of the windows. The helpless pair could only listen, trying to determine what was going on. The female victim heard the rapist talking to somebody. The voices were muffled, but she thought that there was a female voice. While the female victim was listening to the conversation, her boyfriend in the other room used this opportunity to roll over and free himself. He was able to get to his pants pocket and pull out a pocket knife and cut himself free. He then retrieved a loaded revolver that he had under his mattress and he raced out of the room expecting to shoot the rapist. But instead he found that the home was empty. The young man stepped out into the yard and fired a round out of frustration. He freed his girlfriend and then called police. Police arrived at the home shortly after 3 a.m. They took statements and called an ambulance to take the female victim to the hospital. The victims described the assailant as being about 5 foot 9 and 170 pounds, with a medium to husky build. As usual, the female victim described the man's penis as very small. The pair also said that the attacker had very bad breath. The female victim also added one more odd detail before she was taken to the hospital. She said that during the rape, the man called her by her sister's name. While searching the home, the young man's shotgun was found stashed under a couch. Pry marks on the sliding glass door indicated that the intruder had entered the house there and likely exited the same way. Now, Mort, we have to talk about this attack because... While much of what the East Area Rapist did in this crime was normal for him, some things were very different. One of those differences being that the home that the attack took place in was actually a duplex. And as we've talked about, the East Area Rapist typically attacked single-story, single-family homes. Also, there was a lack of any prowling activity or odd events leading up to this attack. Yeah, Mike, this was different in many ways. But the thing that really stands out is the possibility that the Easter rapist may have had a willing accomplice with him, and possibly a female accomplice at that. In at least one other attack, the first confirmed Easter rapist attack, the victim thought she heard a female voice, but thought that the Easter rapist was actually talking to himself. So we have to wonder here if the doorbell, knocking, and car horn were part of some elaborate plan by the rapist to make this couple think he had help. But in a later episode, the possibility of a female accomplice will come up again. And there's evidence to suggest that it wasn't out of the question. One final note about this attack. Five years later, October of 1982, this young woman would receive a call from her attacker Described here by Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes. Uh, the 1982 phone call was made to victim number 24. Uh, it was five years after she was attacked up in Sacramento, actually in Rancho Cordova. And at the time, she's working at a diner in 1982. She's at her job when she receives a phone call. And uh, this phone call, based on the content of the phone call, I am convinced, was the East Area Rapist. 
And uh, it's significant because it's in that 1981 to 1986 gap where we don't have any cases. It's also significant in that it is after all but one of the cases that occurred down in Southern California. And going to that diner today and taking a look at its configuration and how it sits off the street and where the victim was living at the time, which was completely across town, I believe our offender uh, was most likely a customer of that diner and saw one of his previous victims there. So I believe that our offender was back in Rancho Cordova in 1982. So that's after he's been down in Southern California. Some people felt that that five-year gap could be accounted for by him being in custody. He got popped for a burglary and did a five-year stint at CDC. Um, this was not a phone call in which, you know, there's a collect call coming out of the CDC. Uh, it, he is not in custody in October of 1982. So he's out and about. You heard Paul Holes mention a gap from 1981 to 1986, as well as referencing Southern California crimes. This timeline and Southern California events are important, and we'll be covering them as we move along this season. This most recent attack was the first committed by the East Area Rapist in Sacramento County in a four-month period. His return led to questions from citizens about what was being done to catch the East Area Rapist. And these questions prompted the police to respond in this October 8, 1977, Sacramento Bee article. More than 5,000 names have been offered to police and sheriff's detectives trying to track down the sexual terrorist known as the East Area Rapist. All but a dozen of the thousand names of possible suspects received by city police have been cleared, Lieutenant Hal Taylor said this week. The sheriff's office is not being as candid about the 4,000 suspects they have or are investigating. Sheriff Dwayne Lowe's officials refuse to say what they have done with the 4,000 tips provided to the department in the past five months. Only the police department responds to the question, what happens to all the names? All the information gathered on so many citizens in the Sacramento area. Lieutenant Taylor says the city police have discarded any information reported to them or developed by them on all but the remaining 12 persons still considered a suspect. However, the other 900-plus names are being kept on file, so detectives can avoid reinvestigating men they have already cleared. If the rapist is ever identified, Taylor explains, the names of the innocent will be discarded. The sheriff's department is continuing to sort out names of possible suspects, says Chief Deputy Fred Reese saying, quote, we are not going to tell how we eliminate people, unquote. Bill Miller, the sheriff's public information officer, also refused to discuss the handling of names or personal files that have accumulated during the rape investigation. But one detective, Ronald Buchanan, said, quote, about the only thing we are certain of at this time is that the rapist is white and male, unquote. Taylor, the head of the city's homicide squad, more candidly said most of the 1,000 names offered by city police as possible suspects were eliminated quickly saying, quote, some have been from anonymous calls, many through the bee's secret witness program. Some have been obviously vindictive, like someone who didn't like the kid next door. Some have been malicious, unquote. Detectives first screened the names by the collective description of the East Area Rapist and by the times of the attacks, Taylor said. The backgrounds of men not eliminated in that screening were checked for possible criminal leadings or sexual perversion, Taylor said. 
Men still not eliminated from suspicion then were contacted by detectives and interviewed. Taylor said, quote, We have kept information concerning those who fall under the good suspect classification. If we have verified they have backgrounds of major sex offenses, and then they cannot be ruled out in the other points, they continue to be possible suspects in this or other sex crimes, unquote. There are 12 names in that good suspect file. About 1% of all the names offered city detectives in the case. Most of the names flooded into the sheriff's office and police station in May after sheriff's detectives widely publicized their profile of the East Area Rapist and announced that he has a small penis. Detectives said then they believe the man is a paranoid schizophrenic, acting in what psychologists call a homosexual panic because of feelings of sexual inadequacy. The rapist has struck 24 times at irregular intervals since October 1975. 22 attacks have been in homes in the East Area. One has been in the South Area, one in Stockton. The last rape in the series was early last Saturday, when the rapist broke into a duplex in the La Riviera Folsom Boulevard area and attacked a 17-year-old girl who was spending the night with a boyfriend. He followed his pattern of overpowering the couple in bed, tying the man, and leading the girl into another part of the house for repeated sexual assaults. Once the East Area Rapist was back in Sacramento, reports of odd activity, prowling, and the like started to come in. On the 6700 block of Gold Run Avenue in Sacramento, several residents started to get hang-up phone calls that started in early October. One of the families receiving these calls had a teenage daughter who arrived home after school one day to find the door leading from her garage into the kitchen partially ajar. She dismissed it thinking her parents or younger sister must have left it open. But a few days later, she noticed that the door was open once again. Earlier that year, they had arrived home to find their sliding glass door open, but didn't find any signs of anybody entering the home or burglarizing it. On the morning of October 21st, 1977, this home would be targeted by the East Area Rapist. Sometime after midnight, the youngest daughter had gotten up to use the bathroom. She heard movement in the house, but dismissed the noise thinking that one of her family members had also gotten up, so she went back to sleep. At about 3 a.m., the young girl's mother, a 32-year-old homemaker, and her husband, a 35-year-old contractor, were awakened to a flashlight shining in their eyes. A masked man was pointing a gun at them. He growled in a harsh whisper through clenched teeth, I have a 357 Magnum. If you don't tie him tight, I'm going to blow your fucking head off. Then he proceeded to throw shoelaces to the woman. The intruder instructed the woman to tie her husband's hands tightly behind his back. After she tied him, the intruder tied her as well. He then left the room and started rifling through the home. After a short while, he returned with dishes that he stacked on the male victim's back. He then left the room again, but returned swiftly after the dishes made a slight rattle. He warned the victim not to move and that he would cut his wife's throat if he did. The attacker dragged the woman off the bed and forced her to walk to the family room. Once there, he raped the woman. After the rape, he walked to the kitchen and got some food and started to eat. The female victim could hear the rapist crying in the kitchen. After a few minutes, the man walked to the bedroom to check on the male victim before returning the female victim and raping her again. After the second sexual assault, he stepped away from the woman and he seemed to be sobbing. The rapist composed himself and returned to the woman's side. When he did, he told her that he had a buddy in the car outside waiting. 
he told her to give the police a message. Tell the pigs I'll be back on New Year's Eve. And it sounded as if he stuttered when he said the word pigs. Before he left, he pulled the rings off of her fingers. And then just like that, the house was silent. After a little bit of time, the couple felt it was safe. And they called out to their children who had slept through the entire attack. The children came in and were able to free the couple, at which point they called police. Police arrived at the scene close to 5 a.m. and immediately started the investigation. First, they took a detailed description of the attacker. The couple concluded that he was about 5 foot 10, not large, and possibly in his 20s. They mentioned that the man spoke softly, but was nervous and hyper at times. The woman added that his penis was fairly big around, which clashed with many other statements made by East Area rapist victims. She also said that despite raping her multiple times, that the man had been very gentle with her. During the attack on this couple, the rapist had held a lengthy conversation with them. They detailed for police very specific things that the man said. Some of the things he mentioned were that somebody had told him that there was a large amount of cash in the home. He also mentioned that there was no money in this town and he was going to have to leave town. He added that he wanted to fill his bag with food. As investigators moved around the house, they found a lamp with a sweatshirt partially covering it, which resulted in a softly lit room. And we've talked about this in other East Area Rapist attacks. This was a very common tactic that he used. The point of entry was determined to be through the garage and then through the door that led into the kitchen. Outside of the home, they found the victim's rings on the patio as well as three Miller beer bottles. The only thing missing from the home seemed to be a baseball cap with a logo on it. Neighbors were questioned, and the only sign that the attacker had been in the neighborhood that night was the telltale report of dogs barking around the time of the attack. The police left the scene of the crime confident that this had been the 25th confirmed attack by the East Area Rapist. More than 900 residents of the Foothill Farms area poured into Foothills Junior High School Thursday night to hear Sacramento County Sheriff's detectives talk about the East Area Rapist who struck in their neighborhood last Friday. Detective Carol Daly told the concerned neighbors the police have done, quote, everything possible in an attempt to identify and catch the sexual terrorist who has attacked 25 times in the last 16 months. The sheriff's department has even consulted a psychic who wanted to discuss the case and tried to have a biorhythm chart made of the rapist, Miss Daly told the audience. Neither unorthodox venture worked, she told a reporter today. The psychic who called detectives offered a tip that did not check out, and the biorhythm chart proved to be impossible to construct without the rapist's birth date, the detective said. Half of the overwhelming number of police hours devoted to the rapist have been spent, quote, tracking down rumors, Miss Daly told the Foothill Farms audience. That article from the October 28, 1977 Sacramento Bee detailed the concern that area residents had after this latest attack. The next attack by the East Area Rapist would occur just the very next day on October 29th, and this would be on the 4400 block of Woodson Avenue in Sacramento. Now, in the days and weeks prior, suspicious men were seen walking through the area as if they were looking at houses. 
multiple cars that didn't belong to anyone that lived on the street were witnessed. The residents of one home had found on multiple occasions that their garage door was partially open. On October 27th, a day after these same residents had new phone service installed at the home, the 22-year-old housewife that lived there answered the phone. On the other end was silence. This woman and her husband would become the next East Area Rapist victims. On Friday night, October 28th, the woman and her 27-year-old husband, who was a salesman, went out to dinner at around 7.30 p.m. They arrived home at around 10 p.m. and were asleep just before midnight. On early Saturday morning of the 29th at about 1.45 a.m., the husband was fast asleep when he felt something tapping his foot. He opened his eyes only to be blinded by a flashlight. A voice from behind the light said, Don't move or I'll blow your brains out. The hissing voice went on to say, I know you have a gun around here someplace. The husband motioned towards the nightstand and told the man that it was in the drawer. By now, the wife was awake too and was horrified to see the scene unfolding. The man warned the couple that he only wanted food and money for his van. The intruder tossed shoelaces to the woman and ordered her to tie up her husband. But she was panicking and she only tied one of her husband's hands and the attacker noticed this. He warned her that if she tried that again, he would blow her brains out. He tossed her another shoelace and told her to tie both of her husband's hands tightly behind his back. The woman tried to tell the man that they didn't have any cash and offered to write him a check, but he told her, shut your fucking mouth. Once the mail was secured, the man retied him even tighter and then tied the woman before leaving the room. The couple could hear the man going through their stuff. After a few minutes, he returned with dishes that he stacked on the male victim's back and brought the female victim out of the room at knife point. He led her to the living room, threatening to kill her if she tried anything. When they got to the living room, the woman saw strips of torn up towel on the floor. The man used these strips to blindfold her. He walked out of the room, but returned a few minutes later and straddled her. He placed his penis in her bound hands and ordered her to play with it. He then sexually assaulted the woman. As soon as the assault ended, the rapist stood up and started crying. And he said out loud, Mommy, please help me. I don't want to do this, Mommy. The man walked across the room and he was still sobbing loud enough that the male victim in the other room could hear him. Mommy, I don't want to do this. Someone please help me. And both victims would later tell police that they thought this crying, this sobbing was genuine. But after a few minutes, the man composed himself and snapped back into the predatory attacker that he was earlier. He called the female victim a bitch and said that he was going to watch TV and told her that she had better keep her mouth shut. He returned later with a cup and saucer that he placed on the woman's back. He noticed that she was wearing a wedding and engagement ring. He grabbed her fingers and pulled off the rings. He then left the room, and after several minutes of silence, the couple realized the attacker was gone. They worked to get free and then called police who arrived on the scene a little after 4 a.m. The couple detailed for police what they could about the man. They described him as being about five foot eight to five foot ten, 
with average build and weight. The woman told police that the man's penis seemed bigger than she expected based on all the news accounts. Police found that one of the telephone cords had been cut, and like most of the other East Area Rapist attacks, the point of entry was a sliding glass door. Bloodhounds were brought in to try and track the rapist scent. They followed it to a curb on the 4400 block of Whitney Avenue, not far from the scene of the attack, but it was there that they lost the scent. At this point, police were pulling out all the stops trying to apprehend the East Area Rapist. And one of the things that they decided to do was to vacuum the areas in the home where the East Area Rapist had been. And when they analyzed what they were able to vacuum, they found blue specks of some type of blue architectural paint on hairs that were collected. And this blue paint would also be found on shoelaces that the East Area Rapist had handled. And it would be determined that this type of paint was associated with waterproofing. Throughout the East Area Rapist investigation, lab work would continue to find specks of this blue paint. Later on in Southern California, it would also result in a possible lead in the case, but we'll get into that later on this season. Later that morning, around the spot where the bloodhounds had lost the rapist scent near Whitney Avenue, police found a woman who ran a beauty shop and often went to work very early in the morning to get started. They questioned the woman to see if she had seen anything unusual that morning, and it turned out she had. She had arrived that morning for work at around 4 a.m. At about 6.30 a.m., while looking across the street, she witnessed a man stand up in an open trailer that was attached to a dump truck. The man was wearing dark clothes and had a ski mask on. He pulled a bike up from the trailer and jumped down onto the bike and took off very quickly. Police were left to wonder if the man witnessed by this woman was the East Area Rapist. And if it was, this was a missed opportunity to catch him. They could only sit back and wait to see when and where the East Area Rapist would strike next. During late October and November of 77, area residents on the 8100 block of La Riviera Drive were experiencing activity that was typical leading up to an East Area Rapist attack. One woman and her husband had received hang-up phone calls. Six months earlier, this same couple spotted a prowler shining a light into their bedroom window from the outside. On November 7th, a message was found scrawled on a bathroom wall close to this area at the California State University. It read, The East Area Rapist was here. Will rape my first black girl tonight. Dumb cops will never find me. Back on the 8100 block of La Riviera Drive, people heard prowlers in their yards at night on November 9th and early morning hours on the 10th. Barking dogs broke the silence. Somebody was moving around in the darkness. One man flipped his outside light on but didn't see anything unusual. Only minutes later, his mother was awakened by pounding sounds coming from outside. Only a few houses away from this commotion, a 13-year-old girl was asleep in her bed with no idea that she would become the next victim of the East Area Rapist. That girl's name was Margaret, and she joined us to share her story. We won't lay out all the details of how the East Area Rapist got in, what he did, and what he said. Instead, 
We'll let Margaret tell you what happened in her own words and how it affected her over the years. My name is Margaret Wardlow, and I was the 27th victim of the East Area Rapist in Sacramento on November 10th, 1977. I was the youngest victim. I was 13 at the time. For me, um, you know, looking back on the day that it happened, um, I've been I've had the benefit of meeting with Sacramento Homicide, and you know, it's been 40 years, of course, and you know, I didn't. I don't remember everything that I did as a kid that day. So, um, of course, it was a school day, and I met with a sex homicide. They let me go over the case file, and I read that I had um, gotten home from school, and I, I don't think the dog I had a golden retriever. I had a big golden retriever that we kept in the garage during the day, and the garage was open. So I just, when I got home from school, I'd open up the garage door, the dog wasn't in the garage at the time, I believe, and so waited around for the dog to come home. He lived right on the American River at a, house, a condominium that backed up to the American River. So when the dog came home, I got on my bike and rode across the river to a soccer game that was being held at a private school called Country Day and took the dog with me, met a girlfriend over there, and then came back after the game and met up with my mom. We went over to a neighbor's house put the dog back in the house, but didn't lock our front door or anything. And we really were very lax about locking our house up, you know, even though we knew this guy was prolific, you know, rapist running around. My mom really felt that she was too old to be a victim. I was definitely too young. And so we really, I don't think we really thought of ourselves as being um, vulnerable to this guy. But anyway, we went to, over to a single uh, guy um, who was a neighbor in the, in the area just a neighbor and listened to an album, had dinner with him and then went back home about eight o'clock. And in between this time we left our front door open and the dog was in the house. And then we were awoken um, or I was awoken, you know, very early in the morning. It was dark still, splashed by China in my face. And um, somebody telling me, you know, turn over, I'm going to tie you up. And I thought for sure it was this guy that we just, just had, din- had dinner with. And it was a school morning. And um, I thought it was my mom had let him in to joke around and wake me up for school, you know, because she was just a, a prankster. And I refused. And I said, no, no, you know, I'm not going to let you tie me up. And, and he said, this isn't a joke. And I said, quit joking, quit joking, you know, numerous times. And he said, this isn't a joke. And finally, I just like kind of played along with it, playing along with it, thinking that this is still a joke. And then finally, once he got me tied up, I turned over and looked at the clock radio, and I thought it was about 2.30 in the morning, and I realized this isn't a joke. And I, I realized, yeah, this is probably the Easter rapist. I mean, it just kind of went, and my head went right to it. And as a kid, we got the, the newspaper. I think we got the afternoon union, I believe it was. It was delivered in the afternoon, or maybe the bee was delivered. The Sacramento bee was delivered in the afternoon. And my mom subscribed to the, the bee and I was just an avid reader of um, anything you say rapist. And so I was number 27, and everything that had been written about this guy, every single profile, anything that came out in the news, I remember reading one particular article three times over and thinking, why can't I glean more about this guy? Why don't they write more about him? What is making this guy tick? Why is he doing this? Why is he attacking these people? And by that time, he had already started attacking couples in their homes and, you know, putting a place on the husband's back and um, taking the woman into another room and, and attacking her. And um, 
you know, all the more reason for both my mother and I to believe that we weren't, you know, you know, possible victims of his. And anyway, um, uh, he was, you know, very threatening. Every time you, you know, every time he 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 talked to you or spoke to you, he um, said he spoke to you in a very harsh whisper, and it was usually a question, you know, like, do you want me? To, do you want to die? Do you want to kill you? Do you want me to kill your mother? And from what I understood. Um, from reading all these articles, is that this guy just really got off on scaring the bejeebers out of his victims. He just really got off on um, frightening people. And I was just bound and determined not to let him get to me. So as soon as he started threatening me and threatening to kill my mom, um, I just, (laughs) you want me to kill your mom, you want me to kill you, I just told him I don't care. And I just continued with, you know, I don't care. You know, I don't care. And as soon as you, as soon as you started to answer his questions, he'd tell you, "Shut up, shut up, shut up." You know, and it's really harsh, harsh whispers. It's just really the best way to um, explain how he spoke. And you know, you couldn't, you couldn't even get a, a word out when, when, he, when he started to answer him. So it was really frustrating. It was almost like he had a script that he went by, and you know, you weren't part of, you weren't part of it. You know, you, you didn't. He didn't have anything to say in his steps. It was all, all, all of, you know, what he had to, to, to say. Not You didn't have any, any role in the part, right? You just had to be scared. So I remember just not so being scared, but just feeling like so, um, so offended. Like, what are you doing here? There's nothing here for you, you know. You know, he asked me um, a couple times, you know, if I had had sex. And I was a virgin, and, and I told him no. And I think he probably thought I was older than I was, you know, but I, I can definitely see why he chose me. I was very visible. Um, I was very visible in the area. I was always outside. I was always, you know, running around my bathing suit. We lived in this condominium that my mom had um, waited for. They were really, at the time, 40 years ago, they were very coveted um, uh, it was a real coveted real estate area. They were these condos that sit that sat right up against the levee on La Riviera Drive in Sacramento, and they they butted up right up to the levee, and they were unique in that you had your kitchen, your dining room, living room area upstairs, so you had a view of the river and the trees and everything, you know, back along the river area, and then all the bedrooms were downstairs. And the only thing about that was in the evening, when all the lights were on in the house, anyone walking up along that levee could really look into the house. So you could see exactly what was going on in that home. So, you know, anyone that was up there, and I'm sure he, you know, any, anyone that was a victim of his, he was watching their home. He was in their home. Um, he was familiar. I'm sure he was familiar with my dog. My dog was very protective of the house. And anyone that was outside of the home, my dog was always barking, but my dog didn't let out a peep. And my dog was there throughout the whole attack. So um, I, I know this guy was in the house. But he had to have been. And, and like I said, we were not very, um, we weren't very vigilant about locking the house also. But anyway, so after realizing that, you know, of course, this is the Easter rapist, I could hear him talking to my mom. I knew, you know, he was upstairs. He was, you know, in and out of the room. You never knew when he was in or out. I was blindfolded. I was tied up. I had gotten my feet untied at one point. I got my feet untied, and he came into the room and was furious. And I, I was debating, like, should I get up? Should I stand up and try to walk out, out the door? What should I do? 
because I thought, you know, I can't see that because I was blindfolded. I thought, where am I going to go? How am I going to get out the door? Um, and tied my hands were tied behind my back. I just didn't know what I was going to do. But I could hear him once he got the plates from, like I said, my the kitchen was upstairs. Once he had those plates, I could hear him coming down the stairs, and I just knew at that point, like, okay, Margaret, he's coming downstairs with those plates. If he comes into my room, he's going to rape my mom. If he goes into my mom's room, he's going to rape me. And I could hear him going into my mom's room, and I just prepared myself because I knew, you know, I just knew from everything I had read, everything I, I had known. You know, this is one thing you can't get yourself out of, you know. You're a kid that, you know, as a kid, you know, you, get, you can get yourself out of a lot of things, but I know this is just something I was going to have to face up to. And, you know, just be tough and it's going to be over with. And it's almost like I had like a little angel on my shoulder just telling me, you know, you're going to get through this, you're going to survive. And I knew just by talking to him and telling him, you know, just refusing him the pleasure of showing fear, um, I knew that he wasn't going to hurt me, he wasn't going to kill me because he hadn't hurt or killed anyone as far as I knew. And I knew he wasn't going to hurt me. He wasn't going to kill my mom. He wasn't going to hurt me. And that's, that's what I based all of my actions on and my behaviors on was the fact that he hadn't hurt anyone, he hadn't killed anyone. And then once later on, I found out that he had murdered people. I thought, well, that's not the guy. He's not killing people. He's, there's no way he's a murderer. But of course, now, you know, I'm, I'm a, a little crime buff. I love watching, you know, all these shows. And of course, these guys escalate. And I know that, of course, he he became a murderer. Of course, it makes total sense that, you know, he has the auntie, and this is exactly what he became. And um, it's very frightening to think that, 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 you know, I tangled with this person like a good. But as a kid, you're, you know, you're immortal, right? So that's kind of, you know, what happened. Um, and then it, once he, once the attack was over, you know, you never knew when he left. He turned on the fan upstairs. He turned on um, the, you know, the fan, the kitchen fan. He he ran the kitchen water. And then once he departed, um, we just really didn't know when he had left. My mom started screaming for the next-door neighbor. The next-door neighbor came over with um, a rifle or a shotgun and um, came into the house. And by that time, I had hopped all the way upstairs. And my feet were tied still. I hopped all the way upstairs two flights of stairs and got up to the powder room upstairs and had locked myself up inside there. And then the neighbor's wife came upstairs and untied me. And then shortly after that, the police came um, and uh, the Sacramento Sheriff's Department came and, you know, questioned us. And, you know, again, they asked me, like, what did you say to him? That he didn't care. You know, they, they couldn't believe the way I responded to the guy. And even my brother, who I spoke with um, just a few months ago about him showing up to the house, he came as quickly as he could. Um, he was working at the Rice Growers Association. He came to the front door and he said, he, he said, Maggie, you opened the door. And, and I came right away and you opened the door and you said, Jim, what are you doing here? I thought, um, I, I, what I said to him, I said, um, aren't you supposed to be at work? <laughs> he said, you know, you and mom were just attacked by the Easter rapist and you're asking you, like, aren't you supposed to be at work? He said he couldn't believe how cool you were. It, he just says, I can't believe how cool you were because, um, you know, he just didn't he just handled it so well. And I just did. I didn't know, you know, I, I was just tough. I don't know. I just don't know. I can't explain it other than, you know, I was just a tough kid. And I did the best I could. I don't think I could do it today. I don't know how to tell you this, but I just was, was tough. We asked Margaret how much time the Easter Rapist was in her home. I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to say maybe an 
power, maybe. But I, you know, but maybe I maybe short is forty five minutes to an hour. I, I I don't know. As a kid, you know, it's hard to. It's so hard. It's such a hard thing to 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 gauge. I would say an hour, hour maybe hour and fifteen minutes. Margaret told us how it was that she was able to not only cope with the attack, but to also cope with the attacker not being caught. Well, I was just fearless. I was just, I had no fear. I remember feeling, um, I, I remember just feeling indignant. Like, what are you here for? Why are you here? I was just indignant. I just was like, I was pissed. I was more angry, like, I don't really remember the fear so much. Just like, what? There's nothing here for you. This is not, this, I have nothing for you. You know, this is not. I'm not your victim. I'm not your, you know, I, I just, it's such a weird, I don't know, it's such a weird thing. I just don't have, it's almost like, I mean, I had, I had like a, um, some kind of predisposition that I had to know that uh, to read every single article and know everything about this guy before the attack. And then, and then after the attack, I didn't follow up on the, well, I mean, I watched it after attack after attack after attack. And after a while, I was just like so disgusted that, you know, they hadn't found him and they couldn't get him. And, you know, and I had no ill will towards the, the, the sheriff's department. I mean, I know that I knew they were trying to find him. They, they worked so well with me. And I mean, I knew they were trying their best to get him. I knew they were out and they were stopping people and I talked to numerous people that they, they, they had stopped. So, yeah, I mean, I understand that there was a, a lack of communication between jurisdictions, you know, because they didn't have the internet. They didn't have all the, everything we have nowadays. Margaret shared her opinion on what the Easter rapist thought of his encounter with her. He definitely was less interested in me because I wasn't as sexually experienced because he asked me, you know, have you fucked before? He asked me that a couple of times. And he was more, he was more interested in girls that were experienced. Yeah, no, he wanted girls that were more experienced. And then because he wasn't getting that satisfaction, I wasn't playing along to his script. I believe he, yeah, he wasn't getting what he came for, you know, that fear factor thing. He So... Yeah, and then, and then and then the weirdest thing about it is, you know, you think he'd be really angry with me for not being playing along. Um, I was shivering at the end of after he attacked me. Before he left, I was shivering like it was November's right. So it was I was cold and I didn't sleep with any I didn't sleep with any clothes on, and um, <clears throat> I was shivering. <clears throat> I didn't have any covers on me at that point. And he said, what, "What's wrong? Why are you shaking?" And I said, "I'm cold." And he took a blanket and picked it up and like covered me with it and I thought that was like weird like why would he be compassionate towards me after I was such a little bitch we asked Margaret how she thought the East Area Rapist may have targeted her okay. my parents were divorced my mom was working for the state of um, state of California and she was you know she didn't come home till my mom left early didn't come home till late I was um, attending a private um, school called Waldorf and I'd go out and wait the bus out by myself. Sometimes I'd miss the bus, so I'd have to take the regional transit bus, and I'd walk like a couple miles into um, Fair Oaks. I was highly visible. I was down at the river all the time. I'd go fishing after school. If I missed the bus to school, then I'd walk a couple miles through the um, through the river area on my way to school. And we had uh, my school had 55 acres next to the American River, like 
in the woods and stuff. I mean, like right up along the American River. So I'd be walking through those woods, and I mean, I'd be, I was like, he could have seen me in so many places. I was highly visible. My mom was not a protective mom. My mom let me do whatever I wanted, stay out till after dark. I did whatever I wanted. Even after the attack, like I never like, I never looked over my shoulder. I was never, I was never fearful after that. I mean, I knew he never attacked again. I knew he never chased down his, you know, anybody afterwards or came back again. So I wasn't fearful of that. Um, I know he called his um, victim. So we had a recorder on our phone, you know, so whenever we answered the phone, we had to turn on the recorder. I was waiting for the guy to call. I was going to give him a earful, you know. I was, I was ready for that, you know. I, I couldn't wait to tell him to fuck off. Margaret told us about how reading about the East Area Rapist helped her know what was going to happen to her, and it enabled her to deal with it better when it happened. Why wouldn't you, though? No, the guy's, like, raped 26 women in your city, and no, you're definitely freaking, you're, you're on the case, right? Because it's fascinating. Like, who, what is driving this guy to do? What, not, he was, like, the number one story. People were obsessed with it. In Sacramento, when this was going on, let me tell you, there wasn't one person in, this ta- in that town that wasn't, you know, paying attention to the story. I mean, it was, it was front, you know, front page news. It was not like, you know, it was, it, everybody knew about it. In fact, one of my um, classmates said that the day that it happened that we, I was having a conversation with her in music class about the guy. And I'm like, I don't I said, what we were talking about. She goes, I don't remember what we were told. We were talking about the guy. We talked about the guy that day. The day that it, the day that it happened, she goes, we were talking about him. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, no, we had a conversation about him. Everyone at school knew, of course. Everyone at school knew. Um, I didn't share it with very many. I mean, I shared it with a few people. It's just a long story. And then, you know, once I told it a few times, and it just got so... And then people's reaction, of course, people's reaction was, oh, my God, that happened to you. Despite what happened to her at such a young age, Margaret didn't let this affect the rest of her life. In Sacramento, people really reacted to it adversely, and I was just, like, not that affected by it. And years would go by, like, a lot of victims are going to tell you, you know, I get a bad feeling towards that time of year, I get kind of spooked, or I I have a very, um, you know, uneasy feeling. I'll tell you, like, years would go by, and I never thought twice about it. And I never, you know, in fact, I I had even mistaken the... The date, I thought it was November 27th. Well, actually, it's November 10th. I was the 27th victim. So, um, yeah, I had even messed up the date. I didn't even remember the exact date of the attack. So, for me, you know, I really got tired of telling the story. And people, you know, got, I kind of thought sometimes people got a bad a different idea about me, maybe, or they felt sorry for me or something. And I didn't want anybody to feel sorry for me. I really felt it. It was a victory in my life, you know, rather than a tragedy, you know. And it was nothing that ever defined me, and it was nothing, it was nothing ever, like, I could even be a, a rape advocate or something or a help, a help somebody else because I would have been like, hey, girls, it's time to walk down that dark alley because, you know, you can't let somebody affect your life so adversely because they've done something terrible to you. You can't let somebody have so much power over you. Margaret told us just how scary it was 
when she realized how closely her life paralleled the movements of the East Area Rapist. Initially, I went online to find out um, if there had been any any news about the, you know, the or any development in the case. But I, I really didn't know very much about it. Um, I didn't know if they caught him. I didn't know. And I had heard, and I had heard some rumors, some weird rumors about that there had been um, a couple of homicides in Dana Point, which was interesting to me because I had lived in Dana Point. I had gone to Dana Hills High School in 1980. I was in, I was living on Blue Mansion. And so that was interesting to me because I had heard that the East Area Rapist had, had um, gone to Dana Point and killed a couple of people. And I thought that was ludicrous, right? I had heard that years ago and I just really dismissed it. But in 1980, I was living in Dana Point with my mom. We had moved um, three and a half, I think about three and a half years after my attack. We were living in Dana Point. I was going to Dana Hills High School. And the, um, the, to the couple that was murdered in, um, in Dana Point, they were, there was a double homicide. And I remember very well there was a double, double homicide, but I thought, well, it was a triangle or something like that. And um, the Harringtons, I believe, were murdered there. And I remember the murders, but you know, never, it was never linked, obviously, to him until after 2001 when they got the DNA and everything was pulled together. But had I known at the time, I think I really would have, you know, being as cool as I am, I think I would have really freaked out if I would have known how close those, um, that double, those double homicides were to my home. I was really literally right around the corner from, from those murders. That's an interesting coincidence, really, really interesting coincidence. I mean, and it's just maybe very, just a coincidence, but really weird. You know, that, we, that I was so close, it, three and a half years later, to a double homicide that happened where he was involved. And I was living right around the corner, you know, 500 miles away. I would have been gone. I mean, my mom would have been. moved. I mean, my mom would have freaked out. Yeah, no, she did not handle the attack well. And um, she had a lot of therapy, and it was really hard on her. She just did not do well with that whole situation. But, you know, who would with your kid being attacked in like, a situation like that? We asked Margaret to tell us about her choice to come forward publicly. Uh, but, but what got me interested was I went online. I saw that there were, um, you know, a bunch, a bunch of sleuths that were, you know, having, you know, giving their idea about what was going on with the case. And so I told my story. I got on there and said, you know, hey, I was this victim. And, and then I had a few people that said, oh, this girl was called BS. And I kind of got, got offended by that. I thought, yeah, like, why would I want to, why would I want to say something like this and not, you know, make up something like that? Why would you want to tell a story like that and not have it be true? Or, you know, why would you want to make yourself, put yourself in that, in that place? Um, but, you know, I guess people make up all kinds of things. But anyway, so I told my story. I had um, a girl from um, Sacramento contact me. And she asked me if it would be okay if a gentleman named by the name of Tom, Todd Lindsay got a hold of me. He was going to do a uh, special for CNN. And I said, yeah, that'd be fine. And so he got a hold of me, and he asked if um, I would be willing to be interviewed um, for a show that he was um, doing. And um, I said, okay. And then that was how I got introduced to um, some of the other girls. And that it's just taken off from there. And once I met them, it was just, it was 
just life-changing. It was absolutely life-changing to hear Debbie Domingo's story about her mother and how, you know, she was 15 years old and, you know, that was the last time she saw her mom, you know, and I just, and then Janelle Cruz and, you know, being home alone and I I can't imagine being, you know, in her, her shoes and, and just being by yourself there in your house and having an intruder like that. It just, absolutely frightening and um, horrific. So for me, it was just, it was so nice just walking in the door um, where we were filming and having the girls just like embrace me and hug me and hold me and just uh, like unconditional love. I've never had that ever before. And it was just, it just brought me to tears. And um, that's how I got involved. Margaret told us about how meeting other surviving East Era rapist victims and family members of his murder victims changed her outlook on the case and on the Easter rapist himself. For me, you know, I never really felt like it could help anyone. I never felt that I, I never felt that anybody really cared about my story, to be quite honest. I never really, I never really cared if you even got caught, to be honest with you, until I met these other women now. Um, within the last year, I met... Um, Debbie Domingo, I um, met um, Michelle Cruz, um, I met Jean Sandler, I met these lovely, lovely women and um, heard their stories and their stories are incredibly moving and tragic and horrific, Um, you know, losing family members, the way these people were killed, um, just, I can't even imagine the terror that um, went through Janelle Cruz's mind and uh, her, her entire body before he murdered her, you know, he did. And, and just, you know, I can't, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine the Majoris walking out, walking the dog one night and seeing, confronting some guy probably who's peeping or um, trying to break into somebody's um, house or whatever he was doing. I'm sure he chased them down and shot them point blank. I mean, how horrific. I can't, in, the, in my wildest dreams, I can't even imagine that kind of a terror um, and that kind of, in that kind of a moment. So for me, it's become very personal in, 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 in the fact that I've met these, these people whose lives have been changed unimaginably. So that's how I've been affected within just the last year of meeting some of the other um, victims and people who have been affected by this guy. So now I really, I want to see, I want to see justice done, not for me, but for, for others. The story that needs to be told is that, um, you know, this guy's still out there. The story that needs to be told is that we have his DNA. The story that needs to be told is that somebody has information about him and somebody knows something about him. Um, you know, somebody was his girlfriend. Somebody was his classmate. Somebody in Sacramento knows something about him and maybe in Visalia as well. Somebody, somebody knows this guy. There's a few people out there probably that know this guy and are suspect who this guy may be. And, you know, he may very well be alive in Sacramento, still living his life for all we know. You know, he, he, He's got to, if he is out there, he needs to be held accountable for for what he's done to these people. So that's where my story comes in, and that's where I think it's important that I 
you know, I, I contribute if I can. If, if somebody like yourself wants to hear my story or, you know, if there's anything that I can do to help bring um, light um, to this, this, to these crimes or if I bring interest, more interest to this, these, these crimes or, 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 you know, bring more people to the table and, and hear about what's going on with this, um, with the history of these crimes, then that's what I want to be able to help do. And, and hopefully bring some resolve for the people that have lost their loved ones. That's the most important thing to me. What's the most important part of it is that, you know, more people that are made aware of of um, what happened w- with these crimes and um, the fact that we're still looking for this guy, I think that's the most important story that needs to be told, is that we're still looking for this person. He's never been held accountable for these murders and that we need to need to find who he is. I mean, he may, be, he may very well be dead by now, but we need to find out who he was and um, have some answers, give some answers to these families because it's just, it's not, it's not fair and it's just not right. And it's, it's horrific what they've had to go through and not have answers to, to you know, who he was or why he hasn't been brought to justice. Margaret gave us her thoughts about the possibility of other victims coming forward. I'm just amazed that there's only, there's really literally only, as far as um, victims are and um, family, family members of victims, there's only really four of us that are out there right now. I'd like to see more of us, but I mean, I know, <clears throat> I do know, from my own experience, um, Carol Daly did, I, and that was another person I was able to get back in touch with, which which was just huge for me. Um, I remember after the attack, my birthday um, was um, like uh, shortly after my attack, and I came home from school one day, and there was a cop car in front of my house, a sheriff's, sheriff's patrol car, and I thought, oh, my God, why is, why is there a cop car in front of my house? And I walked up to her, and it's Carol Daly. She's waiting for me with a gift for my birthday. She's got a card and a gift for me. And I was just, oh, my gosh, I've never forgotten that. So I was able to thank her after 40 years. You know, this has brought um, us back together. I've been able to see her again and thank her for being there for me. She was just such a wonderful person and um, an incredible woman. And um, so I've been able to thank her for, for being there for me, and she's awesome. She asked me at that point, would it be okay if I had lunch with another one of the victims? She, one of the other victims had asked me, a married woman, she'd asked me if, I could, if, I, if she could take me out to lunch. And I said, yeah, not a problem. I don't mind going out to lunch with another lady. And so she took, a woman take, took me out to lunch. And so we kind of compared stories. And um, this woman started telling me about, like, she had been, her husband had been tied up. She was taken into another room. Um, he had raped her multiple times. He went back to her, her multiple times, and um, her, her and her husband couldn't talk about it anymore. Their marriage was falling apart. It was at that point I realized this guy had really screwed up people's marriages. He had really, really done a number on this couple's life, you know. So I really did realize at that point, you know, this guy has really, really, really messed people's lives up. I realized, obviously, that, you know, I was very lucky. But um, so I do understand that um, I think a couple of victims have passed away. I understand that there's people that don't want to talk about it, and I understand there's, there's good reasons for it. So, you know, whatever, whomever wants to talk about it, I understand that's that's their 
their right if they don't want to. I respect that. Um, I do wonder why after 50 rape victims, there's not more of us out here that are coming forward and telling our story. Now people ask, are you afraid he's going to come back and get you? I'm not afraid he's going to come back and get me or get Ruth. No, I'm not afraid. I wasn't afraid then. I'm not afraid now. We can't thank Margaret enough for coming on to talk to us about what she went through and for sharing something that's so personal. You can't blame any victims that chose not to come forward publicly, but it's the brave stories of people like Margaret and Jane that help us understand what kind of predator we are talking about here. And for me, Morph, I am blown away by the strength. When we talk to Jane, when we talk to Margaret, it's that strength and that resolve that comes through to me. And like I said, it just, it really, it almost gives me chills. Yeah, and I think their accounts are very powerful. All right, Morph, this episode was jam-packed, but I think this is a good place to stop here and wrap up this episode six. If you want to help support the show, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash criminology. And if you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter with the handle Criminology Pod. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Criminology Podcast. If you wanted to join our discussion forum on Facebook, simply search for Criminology Podcast Discussion and Fans. And if you haven't done so, please take a moment to go out on iTunes and rate and review the show. And before we go, we want you to hear from Allie and Charlie who do the amazing true crime podcast insight. And I love this podcast. I've been on this podcast. They have a great style. So check them out. Insight is a podcast that explores true crime and mysteries. We have two hosts from two continents. We recommend trying some of our recent episodes like Marcia, Sylvia, and Stonewall that explores gay rights movement in the U.S. and the unsolved death of activist Marcia P. Johnson. Or our episode on Jaden Lesky, an Australian child whose murder seemed to have been solved. Or perhaps the Lion Sisters, two missing American children who have seen justice. But was it complete justice? We also covered the Parker Hume case out of New Zealand, a story of teen girls who did the unimaginable, yet went on to live their lives out from the shadow of their crime. That is, until the press discovered one of them became a famous author under her new name. We release episodes every Monday and Thursday. You can find Insight in your favourite podcast app or all across social media just by searching for Insight Podcast.